Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School, Chicago. I hope and pray that the following message blesses you with peace and hope in Christ, who died and rose for you for free. It is yours. If you'd like to support God's mission of giving life, hope, peace, joy, and love in the city of Chicago, go to stjames-lutheran.org. Peace. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think if we were going to pick one word, well, maybe two words, um, to define this era of just publishing in general, of the things that we consume, whether it's books, media, TV, etc., it's the era of self-help advice. It's the focus on being able to improve oneself and get a little bit better each day. I often find that at the end of the year when I get recommended books from friends and from family members, most of the books that I get recommended fit into this category of self-help advice. And there are entire channels on YouTube, on TikTok, and Twitter sphere, on Facebook, etc., that are all dedicated to this concept of self-improvement and of self-help. And I always wonder why this genre has taken off the way that it has, right? That if you're going to make a quick buck, this is the genre to dial in on. And I, I think it's because of this. I think we like being told what to do, right? We like being given a task list that we can go through and check off the things that need to be done and walk away with that sense of self-improvement of getting a little bit better. I think especially if you're a type A person, you know, I'm a little bit type A, and you have somebody that you work for who's able to give you that clear list of tasks, right? We value that because, again, we like having clear, direct instructions that we can just knock off our daily checklist, right? And I think that works the same way in the rest of our lives as well. But there's actually kind of a problem that emerges when you consume a ton of this content, especially all at once, because you'll notice that things start to conflict the more experts you sort of load up on. And I experienced this vicariously through my wife with the particular genre known as the mommy blog online. And there are just hundreds of these particular blogs. And eventually you will see that the advice they have for you definitely conflicts, and sometimes in really staggering ways, right? One set of advice will tell you that you need to take time for yourself, you need to be able to recharge, take that break, that's what will be uh, the thing that empowers you to become a better parent, to raise your kids well. The other side of this issue will tell you no, every waking moment, sometimes even the sleeping moments, you need to be focused on pouring into your children, and that's going to be what sets them up for success in the long haul, right? That's what's going to be the thing that gives them the the strong foundation to build from the rest of their lives. And the problem is that no matter which path you go down on this issue, but also any other issue, you're bound to annoy the other expert, the other side of the advice, no matter which one you end up going with. So all of these end up falling short in some way, even if it's really good, really sound advice. Because ultimately, I think as people, and also as Christians in particular, What we're struggling with is our desire to reflect the love of God into the lives of the people around us. And that's a really tall order. It's really hard to be kind of compassionate, loving, et cetera, et cetera. Those things that we see in Christ Jesus and that we always hope to be emulating. So we're always trying to look for ways to get better at that who, you know, for us who are are either in the midst of a parent-child relationship or if you one day desire to be part of a parent-child relationship 
this is at our core, trying to reflect the love of God, reflect the light of God into the lives of those around us. And we struggle with that in real ways. So whether you had a great relationship with your mom or whether you had a not-so-great relationship with your mom, either way, you can probably think about those virtues, those values, those things that we desire from that relationship, right? And they're all things that are modeled off of love, compassion, grace, Compassion especially, right? That bearing with someone, suffering with is what compassion literally means. And that's something that we would say is at the core of any parent-child relationship. So in order to get more uh, insight into that, rather than just viewing this as self-help, I think it's nice to get a picture of what Christ Jesus does for us because Jesus actually serves as a wonderful model for all those things that we're looking for. It's not a direct one-for-one, right, in the sense that Jesus is not our mom, but Jesus does demonstrate certain characteristics that we look for, right? He calls disciples. He makes them a people, right, sort of like what moms do for us. He hands down a tradition of the faith, right? Think about how in your own family you hand down certain uh, traditions as part of your your, uh, family, as part of your, your culture, right? And he also nurtured those disciples. He raises them up in wisdom and in understanding as far as what the faith is all about. What do our parents do? We raise up children in wisdom, in understanding, very similar activities, So what I like is that the Bible isn't afraid to talk about God as one who gently mothers us, right? Um, In fact, in Deuteronomy 32, God refers to himself as the God who gave you birth, right? In other words, he gave you life. Um, In Isaiah, right, God uses similar imagery, and it's actually one of the most profound um, statements in the Bible. In Isaiah, God says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. I think that's a wonderful picture, right? Because the idea is it would be absurd for a mom to forget the child whom she is nursing. And even if she were to forget, the imagery is that God cares for us in an even deeper way and in an even more permanent way than even that very, you know, vivid image that we receive about God. And then Jesus picks up on that same thing. In Lent, we read about how uh, Jesus is talking about Jerusalem and, and how he longed to gather his children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. So those are all the types of traits that we look for in parent-child relationships that are really, I would say, emboldened by the vision of those things through the lens of God, through the lens of Christ Jesus. And what I love is that church history has been very comfortable with this type of language and this imagery helping, helping us to see everything that's happening in the church, in our service even, right? If you look at the early church with baptism, all of their imagery was on being born again, right? On the way that God cares for us in that parent-child type of relationship, even in their architecture of their, their baptismal fonts, things like this. And I think This is very important, and it's because God immerses himself in the stuff of our lives, right? God views the relationships we have with our neighbor, sure, but also those relationships that we have as a family as very fertile ground for Christian formation, for calling people into relationship with him, right? So God places us within community so that we might reflect the love of God into the lives of those around us. And he often uses the work of families and of mothers in particular to draw people to the gospel. And I always think about how this is true for probably the most important Christian figure 
of Western history, and that's St. Augustine, right? St. Augustine, I would say, provides the foundation for all of Christian theology. It's often been said if you have one book outside of the Bible, it should be the Confessions, because it really is one of the first major theological works that helps to influence everything that had come after that. And in the Confessions, St. Augustine talks a lot about his mom, Monica, St. Monica, also a saint, right? Um, But in the Confessions, he talks about how his mother's pious acts, her prayers on behalf of St. Augustine, helped to mold not just who he was as a person, but helped to prompt God's working in his own heart, in his life of faith, that his mother sort of helped to lead him to uh, Jesus, to Christ Jesus, right? And so, again, we can see in that image a very tangible thing that many of us can relate to. Because parents, what do they do? We worry about our children, right? Like, Phoebe's only, you know, a year and a half, and I worry about her every day, that we're doing the right thing for her, that we're caring for her in the right way. Parents worry. So in St. Monica, I think we almost see sanctified worrying in the sense that she continually prayed for her child, St. Augustine, that God would work within his heart. And then what I find wonderful about this image of St. Monica is that she really demonstrates what the cruciform life is all about. And for those unfamiliar, the cruciform life is really the center of Christian theology. It's the idea that there will be suffering in life. There's no way around it. Suffering is part of the life that we live. But we have a God who actually enters into, in other words, makes our suffering his own. That's what Christ Jesus loves to do, right? Is to immerse himself in what we're going through, to bear that alongside of us, and to comfort us in the sense that he has borne our cross ahead of time. He has faced sin, death, and the devil, and he is resurrected from the dead, right? He's risen, and therefore our, our uh, pain, right, our suffering is, uh, we'd say, transformed, right? Pointed towards the joy and the hope of the resurrection, right? The, the Latin phrase for this uh, if you want to impress all of your friends, uh, is ad crucem per lucem, which means through the cross to the light. That's the cruciform life. St. Monica embodied this wonderfully, right? Because St. Augustine was in the middle of just a hedonistic lifestyle. Famously, he said, Lord, grant me a chastity, but not today, right? And St. Monica continued to pray for her son, pray that he would come to the faith, find himself in communion with God. And through these very tangible examples of suffering, St. Augustine actually conversed with his mother about things of the faith. Eventually, through love, St. Monica bore all these things, bore things alongside of her son, suffered alongside of her son. And eventually, St. Augustine credits this in the Confessions as part of his process of conversion. Obviously, the credit goes to God alone, but yet God works through people, and God certainly worked through St. Monica in this example. So what does the life of someone like this teach us, right? What can we take away from this as Christians today? I think it shows us that the love of God is not something that we simply um, receive on Sunday morning and then leave it at the church door, right? Instead, the love of God and the light of God permeates every other facet, every other aspect of who we are, right? It actually enlivens. It's like putting everything into HD in our relationships with one another, right? Absent God, we understand very little about who we, who we are, really, but also who we should be, right? We, we simply operate on a this-for-that kind of relationship. I'm nice to the people who are nice to me. Through the life of Christ Jesus, we can see something different. We can see love that bears with one another, and in fact, love that loves the unlovable. 
which I know is a lot of that same word in a row. But the point is that God actually takes the first step toward us, right? Loves us even when we are unlovable. And in that sense, now creates a new transformation from sinner to saint in the life of the Christian. One theologian put it this way, and it's a quote that's always stuck with me. God explains himself before us as love. Love radiates from God and instills the light of love in our heart. So there's that path, always moving from God to us, from moving from us to those whom God has placed within our lives. So that love of God actually works to illumine, right? To, to light up everything else that we experience in this life. And wherever the light of God is dawned, this is essential for John, right, in his gospel, wherever the light of God is dawned, something new is created. Something new has taken place, right? So it breaks down that artificial divide between the sacred and the secular and instead creates a whole new way of being wherever we are in our lives and in our vocations. And we should take that illumination of the gospel and work it into aspects of our lives. That's why I like celebrating Mother's Day in church, because even though it's not a Christian holiday, it's nice to see the way that the love of God can work itself out in all sorts of interesting ways in our lives of who we are. And then this is exactly what Jesus even does in our gospel text today, right? Uh, In our gospel text for today, Jesus gets together with his disciples, with other people in the temple on this feast of dedication, which is a holiday that would repeat in the life of a Jewish person in the first century. So they're probably used to going about the normal habits like we do. It's Mother's Day, so what do we do? We go to church, then we go to brunch, and we have a little relaxing time afterward. Probably the same kind of thing, right? Except in the Feast of Dedication, they would celebrate, sometimes, by the way, this is important, it's called the Feast of Lights in other aspects and other uh, times in the Jewish faith. And so they would celebrate the fact that God's presence had illumined the temple, that he had taken up residency in the temple. And so what does Jesus do? He takes a familiar holiday and he says, the light of God now has dawned in the sense that Christ Jesus, who is the light of God, has now come into the world and no darkness will overcome it. There, Jesus takes the familiar and then amplifies it in light of his own person, his own work, the things that he's going to do during Holy Week, which is to shine forth the light of God to the extent that he'll go to the darkest places, right? He'll go to the cross, overcome sin and death, grant us the hope of resurrection in its place. So by this light, then, we're able to see everything else. C.S. Lewis also has a wonderful way of articulating this. He said he believes in Christianity not simply because it's true, right? But he believes in Christianity because he believes that the sun has risen. The sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I now see everything else, right? So it actually governs the way that we interact with one another from there. So what's the point here? That's exactly what was going on in this gospel text this morning, right? Now the love of God, the light of Christ have come into the world and dawn, so we're able to see everything else around us by this. And from there, we're able to then love, to nurture, to care for, to have compassion, to suffer alongside of one another in this way that allows us to be Christ-like, right? We are formed in that relationship, and it's more than just self-help advice. In fact, it's a parent-child relationship where you are what this family kind of has made you, right? Which is an heir of the heavenly kingdom, free now to share that with one another. So don't treat God like some kind of like self-help guru or some sort of advice guy where you unlock all your steps to success and your steps to self-improvement. Instead, look at God as that parent in that parent-child relationship. Look to him as that father who loves you, nourishes you, cares for you, raises you in the faith, constantly informs you of what it means 
And then go even further. Look at God as that person who has birthed you anew by means of water and the spirit. It was wonderful. At the 830 service, we had a baptism. So I had the perfect illustration of this right there at my fingertips. And it was wonderful. So we now have that relationship, that parent-child relationship in God the Father. And he has sent Christ Jesus into the heart of our suffering, into the cross, and also into the empty tomb, right? Into the tomb, and from there, we see the empty tomb, and we're able to recognize that God has transformed our suffering into glory. He has transformed our sadness into joy. This is the heart of the Christian faith. So now our invitation is to reflect that, just like that person who I mentioned, St. Monica, right? Who St. Monica interceded for her son, and now we can take that as like a little uh, example of what Christ does for us, because he goes much further than just interceding and praying for us. In fact, he goes all the way in mending our relationship with God the Father, making us an heir of the eternal riches of Christ and rightly a member of God's family. We can call that our own because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. One last note from today's gospel text. Toward the end of the reading, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hearing, I think that's wonderful. Moms and dads know all about hearing, and often we will lament that our children don't listen to us, even when we want them to do so, right? But there are these beautiful moments, rewarding moments as a parent, where you call your child's name, they look at you, and they run toward you. That's at the heart of our relationship with God the Father. Christ Jesus calls us by name as our good shepherd. We are able to hear that voice and run toward him. Not just run toward him, but also look at him as that figure in our familiar relationship where we can run toward him and be gathered up in the arms of our Lord Jesus Christ who loves us, cares for us, and has given us eternal life. Amen.